Welcome back, everyone, to the 16th episode of the Take the Points podcast. I'm your co-host, Tate Seth, joined as always by Arjun Menon, where we will do our week three review, give out our Who Was Him awards, and talk about some letdowns, and look ahead to week four, and then have another M Fans interview with Dak Brown. Arjun, I, I think I might know the answer to this, but how are you feeling? Yeah, I'm not I'm not doing the best. Honestly, <laughs> wasn't the best week of football, um, not only for my Chargers, but just in general. Didn't really have a lot of games that came down to the wire like last week. And the, the games with like totals over 50, like Lions, Vikings, and Bills, Dolphins, both went under. So it kind of represented the weekend as a whole. And we got an absolute privilege of a game on Sunday Night Football with the Niners and Broncos to cap it off. So <laughs> not not the greatest or most exciting week of football, but, you know, we powered through it. Yeah, I know. I've, I've, I like lo- I've loved all the one o'clock slates so far this season, but the primetime games have been a little tough. And I've uh, definitely tested my my bedtime. But before we get into to week three reviews, uh, let's talk about our our bets. <laughs> uh, another another tough week, but I I feel like we're we're close. If you want to break it down, yeah. Like okay, I think we can. Ag- you and me can both agree. It's just been like a weird season. Mm-hmm. I think you know Owen Phillips, who who puts out some great data, is like he he has like a different way of presenting team tiers where he makes it a rock like a diamond. The bad teams in the NFL this year aren't bad anymore. Like, I think there's a lot more parity. And when I look at our bets and I went back and listened to our reasoning, I don't think we were off. Right now, you know, our record four and seven down about five units. But like, I, I think that our reasoning is right. And we just got some unlucky stuff that went our didn't go our way. The Broncos Chiefs money line parlay in week one. How are we supposed to predict Javante Williams and Melvin Gordon fumbling at the one? Mm-hmm. Right. That's that's just tough to predict. The Ravens in week two blowing a 21 point lead to the Dolphins like that is so unraven like that. Again, just didn't go our way this past week. We had an Eagles Chiefs five point teaser. So all we needed was Chiefs minus one and a half. And the Chiefs played were the best losing team of all time. Right. Yeah. This past weekend. So. I think it's just a bunch of things that didn't go our way. I'm not even mentioning Jimmy G stepping out of bounds like Dan Orlovsky, mm. which <laughs> inadvertently ruined our Niners minus one and a half bet. And I also want to bring up, you know, we encourage people to try to make bets on Monday and Sunday instead of, you know, tailing us on Wednesday, even though we do. And, you know, obviously appreciate people tailing our plays and, you know, putting our putting your faith in us. But midweek betting isn't as profitable as betting earlier mm. in the week. So, you know, just putting it out there. You know, we aren't getting the best lines. Like if we bet Broncos plus two and a half on Sunday night, that would have cashed, right? So yeah. just some things to keep in mind. But I, I still think our process and are is good. It's just the results haven't gone our way. Yeah. Yeah. I think I yeah, I think we'll get there. It's just been a little frustrating. Um, but we'll we'll uh we'll hopefully improve. But you know, we can we can jump into the slate here. And yeah, well, you know, you, you touched on it, but Chiefs Colts, we really have to start with, right? And like here's the crazy thing. Patrick Mahomes finished with a 0.25 EPA per play. Very good. Like usual, not good for Mahomes, but really good for most quarterbacks. Matt Ryan finished with a negative 0.05 EPA per play. But because of all the special teams errors that the Chiefs made in this game, the Colts came away winning it. The Chiefs had a higher EPA per play as a team, EPA per rush and EPA per pass, but still lost. So even though the Colts were the best rushing team in the NFL last year, the Chiefs still had a better efficiency on the ground. But just because of just weird things that happened, the Colts ended up winning this game. So Chiefs should not be worried at all. 
Um, but it's it's like a pretty big win for the Colts, I think, to get them back into the AFC South race. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And um, I think the point, our our uh, read in this game was Gus Bradley's going to run a ton, ton of cover three. And I know there's some people on Twitter that were saying like, the uh, Mahomes versus Gus Bradley thing was overblown. Yes, Mahomes had two bad performances versus Gus Bradley and had two really good performances. But the lean and the read on this game wasn't just Mahomes versus Gus Bradley. It was Mahomes versus cover three. Mm -hmm. Mahomes has the highest EPA per play versus cover three out of any quarterback since 2018. About 0.32 EPA per play, which is absolutely insane. The thing is, we you know I, I didn't predict that Gus Bradley would actually adjust his defense. He had 17 snaps of cover one, 18 snaps of cover three, and 14 snaps of quarters. When has Gus Bradley ever switched to split safety defense? <laughs> right? Like, again, that was something maybe we should have predicted, but based on Gus Bradley's history, it's not something that I was really looking at. So, you know, props to the to the Colts, even without Shaquille Leonard, they managed to, you know, kind of slow down the Chiefs, you can say. But I think the moral of the story is like, a good special teams can like help you win a game, but a really bad special teams mm -hmm. will lose you games, you know, instead of like a really good special teams, like being the reason you won. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point. And yeah, like the point about when Gus Bradley getting into quarter is like, this is why Mahomes every year is the most important player in the league. Like defensive coordinators have to change their entire scheme that they're comfortable with just to face him. And the quarters plays did just enough, right? Like there's only 2.1 yards allowed um, per play when they got into quarters. So it, it gave the Colts just enough margin for error where when the Chiefs committed all the errors that you could commit, they they were able to win. And like the fake field goal to me was like the most egregious of it, right? Like if you if if you're gonna if you're not gonna kick a field goal, why do you not just send out the most dangerous quarterback of all time to attempt that fourth and ten for you? Like why do you trust you know, your punter yeah. with little to no throwing experience to throw it. Like anyone who uh, plays Madden a lot knows when you fake a field goal, they almost always miss the throw. Yeah. So it was just really weird. Yeah. And um, Kevin Cole's adjusted score had the Chiefs winning this game, which, you know, ironic after what he tweeted out <laughs> uh, last week. Um, but yeah, you know, I expect the Chiefs to bounce back. They're still the favorites in the AFC mm -hmm. West, all of that. Um, so we can transition to Bill's Dolphins, and I really, really want to hear your take on this because right now I think the Dolphins should be one and two. And I think as much as I want to give I, I as much as I do give props to Mike McDaniel for changing the culture, high pass rate over expected, even for Shanahan offense, putting two in positions to succeed. I don't think this Dolphins team, ESPN had this team as the number one team in their power ranking, which I don't I just don't understand how you can do that, especially when they're now three and a half point dogs on the road in Cincinnati. So, you know, Kevin Cole's adjusted score had the Bills winning 30 to 26. And when you think about what happened in that Bills game, the Bills fumbled inside their own 10. So the Dolphins got a touchdown simply because, uh, you know, they started inside the 10 yard line. The, the Dolphins couldn't get anything going on offense. Tua had 13 completions and they still won the game mind you. And the Dolphins' only explosive plays came when Christian Benford got hurt. So it seems to me, and I talked about this in our M-Fans meeting earlier today, it seems to me the Dolphins can only generate explosive plays when they're trailing and when the and or when the defense is 
is banged up and they're playing their backup corners. Now for the Bills, this wasn't even their backup corner that was in. This is the backup to the backup, right? Like they're already done Tredavious White, Dane Jackson, and Benford. Mm -hmm. You're starting CB5, damn near six on the field. And, you know, again, I don't think the Dolphins are that great. I think they're definitely a playoff contender, but there shouldn't be this overreaction that they're the new team in the AFC. Like the Bills still run the AFC. I think they just got unlucky, especially on fourth down in in the in the special teams game, similar to the Chiefs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I I I partly agree with with a lot of the stuff you said, but I just this not like this game specifically, but like these last three weeks just kind of changed how I view two on the Dolphins. Right, like I just thought they were going to be an average team this year because they had an average quarterback. And, you know, kind of like an average supporting cast um, with with their offensive line being bad and their receivers being really good. But even if they don't, even if they haven't deserved to win the Ravens and the Bills game, the, the Ravens and Bills are the two of the top three teams in the AFC. And they've hung with them like pretty hard. And like, that's why I feel pretty good about the Dolphins going forward. And we can see that maybe the mid-tier uh of playoff teams in the AFC like the Chargers and the Bengals <laughs> and uh and you know like the, the a lot of people you know like the Broncos or Colts coming into the season all those teams are not as good as we thought they would be because of different reasons so the Dolphins can take advantage of like that kind of like the rest of the the uh you know seeds four through seven in the AFC not being as good as we thought they were and establish themselves in that spot. And even though they haven't maybe deserved to win these games, being three and oh playing, you know, three of the best head coaches in the NFL, uh, you know, who who we both thought were the, the three top coaches is like something that I think, you know, we need to consider going forward. And then, you know, they have another big test uh against the Bengals this Thursday. Yeah, I think I definitely, like I said, and that's why I said I do give credit to Mike McDaniel. I think he's had as good of a start to your head coaching career as you can expect. And, but again, I, I still have questions about Tua and I still have questions about when they face a defense that's not hurt and when they're not, you know, just playing from behind. And, you know, the, the Bengals, again, they just lost DJ Reader, so that's an important. And at this point, you're probably not going to face a fully healthy defense, but, you know, I, I think the Dolphins have had some real tests. They passed them, but they haven't passed them to the point where I'm comfortable putting them up there with the Chiefs, the Bills, and in my opinion, the Ravens, the Ravens, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I see that, but like you can only kind of play your schedule and like the slate that you're given. Yeah. And like they have done done well with that. And like the Tua and Jalen Waddle connection is is very evident. Like it's like it's like something that, you know, has carried on uh from college to the NFL. We saw, you know, a similar thing with with Burrow and Jamar Chase last year. And like Tyreek Hill has fit into this offense nicely. Raheem Moser is, you know, like one of the the fastest running backs in the NFL. Like everything is just like there for the Dolphins. Teron Armstead has been awesome. Amazing. And if you get 17 games out of him, that's like game changing for your your offense. So like the pieces are there for Tua. And, you know, Tua made like a great throw on that on that third down to Waddle where he's he split the safeties. But yeah, I don't know. I I think like the other thing is like you can see like the funniest thing about this game was you could see how the shade in the stadium was only on the <laughs> yeah. Dolphin side yeah. the whole game. And it just like never passed the, the uh, you know, the the center of the field. And so like that's like, a you know, that's like pretty big home home field advantage. Yeah. But still, I, I've, I've been very impressed with the Dolphins so far. And I, I think like they're going to be pretty good going forward. Yeah. 
All right, let's go on to Vikings-Lions. I'm going to just let you take it away uh, <laughs> since you kind of watched this game start to finish. Yeah, so uh, going into this game, every single Lions fan I talked to was picking the Lions to win. And so I talked about, you know, on last week's pod how I thought the Lions had a really good chance in this game because of how they matched up against the Vikings. But whenever, whenever everyone is on one side, I tend to flip to the other. So then I started to think that the Vikings were going to win this game. Uh, the Lions came out. Play calling was was great, as usual, by Ben Johnson. And, you know, the offense was flowing. This was probably Jared Goff's, one of his top three games as a Lion. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't what he did against Minnesota in 2018 on that Thursday night game where he was just bending the ball, but it was it was pretty similar. And he, he even escaped pressure a couple of times. But when 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 this Lions team gets up, they become stagnant on offense. And we saw that where you're up 10, uh, the Vikings just fumbled. There's five minutes to go. And all you know you have to do is just kind of churn out first downs. You have one of the best offensive lines in the league. Should be pretty easy. Third and one, they take a deep shot to DJ Chark, 20 yards down the field, incomplete, punt on fourth and one. Yeah. And there was no reason to take a deep shot there because you could have just gone run, run with that offensive line and DeAndre Swift. And chances are you would have gotten a first down on one of them. So Vikings go down and score. You have the ball up three and fourth and four. And then, you know, according to Ben Baldwin's model, by kicking a field goal from, you know, the the plus um, 40 on fourth and four with a minute 10 to go, would have lost 5.5% win probability. And Dan Campbell had been aggressive all game. We were four or five on fourth downs. And he decides to kick the field goal with a bad kicker. Kick is missed. And like the thing that happens when you miss a field goal is you get the ball seven yards back, like basically where, you know, it was it was uh held instead of like where the line of scrimmage was. Vikings go down and score. That's that's the game yeah. over. So it was just a weird lapse in judgment from Dan Campbell, who's always very aggressive on fourth downs no matter what. And it was just strange to see that the fight like the Lions like had more talent than the Vikings did and they outplayed them it, it you know to lose that game in Minnesota is, is gonna sting for a while I think yeah no I felt so bad because I did feel like the, the the lines were winning that game and uh, frankly like that was their game to win mm -hmm. I think the the Ben Campbell thing where you know playing with the lead young play caller you know first year's offensive coordinator it is a little bit tricky to kind of navigate that like staying the toe of being aggressive while also just trying to chew, chew out the clock so i think he's had a tremendous start to the season and i think you know that those kind of like nuances where playing with the lead you still want to keep your foot on the pedal especially in a divisional game like you don't want to ever like let them back in especially away in a, in a, mm -hmm. in a way situation i'm hoping he comes back i do want to talk about jeffrey okuda though like i i've been on jeffrey okuda like or tweeting like good things about him since week one this is like his um shadow chart and like uh his stats. Week one, shout out AJ Brown eight times, uh targeted twice, two completions for 10 yards. That's okay. Uh shout out De uh Devontae Smith 21 times, targeted only once, zero completions, zero yards. Amazing. Uh shout out Jahan Dotson, week two, eight times, allowed one catch for nine yards on one target. Shout out Terry McLaurin, 18 times. Targeted four times, only allowed two completions for 22 yards. Great. Against Justin Jefferson, some who say are the, is the best receiver in the league, was the primary matchup on him 31 times 
and only allowed two catches for nine yards on four targets. Now, mind you, I, and I also looked into this, the Lions doubled, helped bracketed Jefferson 14 snaps, according to PFF's mm. charter. So that's about 30-ish percent of the time. But still, like allowing that type of stat line to one of the best receivers, the favorite to win the Offensive Player of the Year, is a tremendous step forward. I just wish our Amani Aruarie was playing at the level because the Lions could have a really good cornerback duo if, uh, if Amani was playing at his 2021 level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm glad you've been putting out the Akuda appraise. It's it's been something that you know we've kind of needed, and they need to flip it right. So like they approached this game with Awarie as their cornerback one, so they kind of did the Belichick one double strategy, yeah. right? Where you stick your best corner on their wide receiver too. So Awarie was on Thielen all game, got six penalties called on him <laughs> for, for illegal contact. Um, so that didn't work. But if I think if you flip that, you put Akuda on Thielen and used Awarie and the safety, which was Tracy Walker for half the game and then became Deshaun Elliott when Tracy Walker got hurt, that might have worked out. And like w- we can see that change happening in the Lions cornerback room right now where Akuda is becoming the corner one and um and Awarie is becoming the corner two. And then like the the book is kind of out on how to stop this version of the Vikings. I think they might adjust later on, but like it's just like do what you can to take away Jefferson. The other guys can't beat you like they used to. And then just blitz the heck out of Kirk Cousins. Yeah. The Lions were blitzing Kirk Cousins like crazy, just playing man coverage and blitzing. And with that offensive line and just like the way Kirk plays right now, when there's pressure coming from multiple sides, he cannot take advantage yeah. of it like other quarterbacks can. Yeah. No, we talked about it on our episode last week. Like Kirk Cousins, when he gets blitzed, he just looks so frazzled. Mm-hmm. Eagles blitzed the shit out of him. And he just threw pretty much two picks in the reds on a yeah. back-to-back plays. Um, so Packers, Bucks, um, one of the better games of the slate, even though with a low total, just, you know, two goats going at it. Um, I, you know, I was focused more on, on Chargers Jag. So do you want to start off with this? Like, what did you see? I, I, you know, I definitely kept up with the highlights and everything, but mm-hmm. what did you take away from this game? Yeah, I think the Packers are, are going to be built like a team that just was going to grind out these 20 to 17 or 17 to 13 wins because the talent is like clear for, for their defense, right? Like Quay Walker and Devondre Campbell is probably the longest combined wingspan <laughs> of linebackers like to ever play together in the NFL. And you can see it when they're playing on the field together. They are just wrapping up players. They're getting their their hands in the way. Um, the, the Packers have to be able to, to kind of like at least run the ball because this, you know, LaFleur, Rodgers, and poor receiver room offense can only go so far. But having a negative 0.3 EPA per rush, granted, against, you know, the Bucks vaunted run defense can't happen. The one explosive run they had, uh, they were in 21 personnel, seven-man box. A.J. Dillon gets motioned out, and that draws a linebacker with him. And now you have your five offensive linemen, one tight end versus a six-man box, and you hand it off to Aaron Jones yeah. and you provide some burst. That's like what they really just need to lead into. Can, can they get into six-man boxes to run against? And it's really tough when you don't have wide receivers that that can scare other teams. Yeah, I think so. I love that you brought up that that play because that is literally my favorite play of Mike LaFleur's um, offense. So Nate Tice, he says it's a split back zone run with a speed motion at the snap. So that's what gets the linebacker out of the box. Mm-hmm. So you have a wider box to run in. And with how good the Packers offensive line is with Bakhtiari and Elton Jenkins back, I mean, they're going to be able to run over anyone. Now, this might have been the best game 
in in the NFL this season in terms of linebacking duos. Like Quay Walker oh, yeah. and, and Campbell are are you know Quay still pretty young, but you know they're they're probably a pretty solid core. De- Devin White and Levante David are are playing as good as any linebacker in the league right now. Like Aaron Jones and Dylan were grinding mm-hmm. out for the for their yards, and I thought you know from a betting perspective, I thought this was going to be. A, a potential like an Aaron Rodgers over attempts, over completions, because teams love the the Bucks pass rate over expected based is always uh, positive mm-hmm. because of how good their run defense is. So I was like, okay, a lot of checkdowns for Rodgers, a lot of getting the ball out quick, which is kind of what we saw. And in the, at the end of the day, both teams were just super inefficient as an offense. Yeah, um, yeah, like on the Bucks side of things, like this feels like Brady's 2019 season with the Patriots yeah. all over again, where the receiving talent just isn't there. And like, he just seems a little checked out. Like, how do you, if you're Tom Brady and you're, you know, people talk about how much of a genius you are, how much situational awareness you have at all times. There is no way you should be taking a delay a game on a two point conversion. uh, That's that could potentially tie the game and take it into overtime. Like, I I just don't get how that's possible for him to do that. And it it happened in this game. And it should have been a delay a game on the on the final play uh before the two-point conversion too and Aaron Rodgers called that out in the the post-game interview too so it just seems like like the Bucks once they get healthy they could be one of the you know the NFC contenders and they should get healthy eventually but this iteration of the Bucks right now is not a good team yeah and I think the last thing I want to say about this I think the Packers would are probably the worst matchup for any veteran quarterback because most good veteran quarterbacks take advantage of the defense's weakest link but the Packers don't have any weak links in their secondary. Mm-hmm. Jair's, you know, top 10. Eric Stokes is, like, pretty much average, above average. Like, he'll hold his own. Rasul Douglas is coming off pretty much an all-pro season. Uh, Darnell Savage is, you know, he's okay. Definitely above average. A- Amos, same thing. Like, it's it's hard to find a weak link on this Packers defense, but it seems like this is what they were building their team to do. Now, I'm not sure how well it's going to translate when it comes to January and, you know, they need to score points. Because, you know, this version of the Packers offense hasn't looked great so far. But, you know, I, I think when you give Aaron Rodgers the time and as the months go on, they'll probably figure it out. Right. It's, it's Aaron Rodgers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I know. You you just have to have that that faith there. And like the other thing is like it's Tom Brady, like the Bucks should yeah, figure it out as well. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. But that so. OK, so those are the games we, we wanted to go over in week three. We will now get into our who was him segment and our letdowns of the week. You are not him. You are not him. Told a bitch I'm him. Quit playing. Turn around with a boss. What bitch get in? Try stay on the road like the Michelin man. Put an M on your head like a Michigan fan. As usual, we'll do three players each that we thought really performed well over the past week. And I want to start with Devante Smith, uh, you know, Eagles receiver. Uh, 12 targets, eight receptions, 169 yards with a 45-yard reception that really capped it all off. And, you know, with, with all the focus about getting A.J. Brown this uh, offseason, it was perfect for Devontae Smith because you have to remember he had the greatest receiving season in college football history yeah. and won Heisman in a quarterback-dominated uh, sport right now. And it's by sliding him down to wide receiver, too, it just frees up so many of the things that the Eagles want to do. And you can tell that the the connection with him and Hurts is there. And he just went off this weekend and having the ability to have two receivers that can have uh, over 150 yards receiving so far is going to be so crucial for the Eagles offense. And he was just so good against the commanders. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely love that one. Um, I, 
I'm going to bring up Jeffrey Okuda again because I think he deserves that praise. He's been getting a lot of love from the film guys on Twitter. His stats have checked out. And again, like I think you're right in the sense that he should probably be CB1 now and uh, Amani CB2. And if if the Lions are going to play that type of Belichick-style defense, then he should be he should be locking down whatever wide receiver two um, the opposing team has. So I'm not going to read off the stats again. You know, obviously I listed them listed it out before, but just from this past week, um, only allowed two catches on four targets for nine yards versus Justin Jefferson, which is a win for any in, in my book at least. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And yeah, I'm I'm loving all the Jeff Okuda praise that's happening. Uh, I'm going to go with who would be the MVP right now if the season ended Lamar Jackson, Um, you know, another great game against uh, the Patriots this, this uh, past Sunday um, threw for 218 yards, four touchdowns, crazy that people said he wasn't going to be able to pass uh, this year. And then also ran 11 times for 107 yards. Um, And then like the, you know, the most important thing that or not the most important thing, but the most important thing he does when he doesn't have the ball in his hands is he makes it easier for the other running backs on his team to get yards. So, you know, you have uh, you have Justice Hill getting six rushes for 60 yards. That's 10 yards to carry because of the gravity of Lamar Jackson. And, you know, he has more touchdowns right now than 30 NFL teams. Only the Lions have more touchdowns than Lamar Jackson has. So it's it's, it's crazy that it's he's a one man offense and he's just he just makes everyone better uh you know mark andrews rashad bateman devin duvernay they just have easier jobs because of lamar jackson and he's playing at an mvp level once again i think it was timo or kevin cole who put out that no players accounted for a larger percentage of their team's total yards than lamar jackson mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. yeah and yeah that i mean that just speaks to how he is as a player and i am really curious to see what contract he gets in the off season, but um, you know, my second person, not a player, but I have to go with D'Amico Ryan. Oh. The guy has been on an absolute tear to start the year. No defense has forced more three and outs than the 49ers. They have forced a three and out so far in 2022, 44% of the time, which is 6% higher than second place, which is the Eagles. Now to, you know, to his credit or to not his credit, I guess the, uh, the offenses he's played haven't been the greatest. You know, he started with a monsoon game against the Bears and then, you know, the Seahawks, who are kind of like an average offense right now. But the Broncos had a lot of expectations coming into the year. And D'Amico kind of just shut Russell Wilson down. I think the, the Broncos had at least eight three and outs last night, which kind of checks out in the data. So he's going to be a head coach next year. If he's not, I mean, he probably, someone probably dug up something really bad on him, but everything checks out for him to be a future head coach next year. And I think he's going to be a tremendous defensive play caller wherever he goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I know. I, I, I really noticed D'Amico Ryan's his game plan on Sunday night. And I thought it was, it was phenomenal. He's just been great the whole time he's been there. And I, I think a team that's going to hire him next year is going to be really lucky to, to have them on, on their defensive staff. Uh, and then my last, who was him of the week is Texans. Defensive back Jalen Petrie, uh, rookie, two interceptions off Lamar Jackson, or sorry, Justin Fields, um, five tackles, and he almost took one of those interceptions back to the house. He was just flying all over the field on Sunday. Not many people noticed because it was it was Texans Bears and the Bears squeaked one out, but it, it would be really huge if 
the Texans went Stingley Petrie in their draft and it just boosted the total, you know, the rebuild yeah. for them. Um, and with both of those players hitting and it, it looks like that, that should happen so far. Yeah, definitely. And he, he was someone I know a lot of film guys liked and mm-hmm. I think putting him in Lovey uh, Smith's scheme where he's playing kind of that nickelback safety role where he's either closer to the line of scrimmage playing that um, nickel hook zone. I think that's a great spot for him and he's definitely played really well. Um, staying with the player in that game, I have to go with Khalil Herbert, someone who shows up number one in your rushing yards over expected, currently averaging 2.71 rushing yards over expected over um, the first three weeks of the year. Um, this past weekend, seven forced missed tackles, 157 yards, 132 of that coming after contact with, you know, two touchdowns on the ground. I think it's it's good and also bad for the Bears that they have two, like, really good running backs in mm-hmm. Montgomery and Herbert. Good because, you know, you want as many good players as, as you can on your team. Bad because I think this this will probably influence Luke Getze to start calling more run plays instead of finding out what a type of quarterback Justin Fields is, even though right now it's trend, trending towards him not really being a franchise I, I think guy. We, I'm, I'm worried we might know. Yeah, we yeah, probably I'm know. I'm worried we might know. I think there is a vo- there's a signal in volume, and if, they don't, if they're only trusting him to throw mm-hmm. it 17, 18 mm-hmm. times a game, they probably don't think he's a, a good quarterback at all. Um, and but again, you know, it, it doesn't hurt to have good players on your team. And Herbert is definitely a good player. Yeah, no, I've, I love the way Khalil Herbert played and has showed up in advanced metrics, um, either, you know, PFS rushing yards over expected or next gen stats. Um, flipping to the other side, the letdowns, you know, players and coaches from the past weekend who disappointed. And I have to start with Jimmy Garoppolo, uh, you know, negative 0.33. EPA Yikes. per play, uh, which is the 10th percentile amongst all starting quarterbacks uh, in, in single games. Um, and what's really disappointing to me about Jimmy Garoppolo is even though he actually hasn't played well himself, like he hasn't played amazing, he's always been able to have really high efficiency in production if you use traditional stats like yards per attempt or if you use advanced stats like EPA per play. For him to come in his first game after having a whole week to get ready for it and play that poorly and pull in Orlovsky and just make, you know, mistakes all the time, it was really disappointing to see. And like the thing that we forget about Jimmy Garoppolo is we talk so much about how Lance is going to have so many bad moments and so many good moments. Jimmy G has a lot of those bad moments, like maybe not as much as Lance would have had, but he has a lot of those like just like mind numbing decisions and inaccurate throws from times. And the offense started off like looking okay. And it just like fell off the cliff, a cliff as the game went on. And it was, it looked like, you know, someone who uh, just wasn't ready to to play and, and be a starting quarterback. Yet. And that's not what you want to see from Jimmy G right now. Yeah. It, it's so tough because like, there's so many throws where he, he was behind Debo Samuel or Brandon mm-hmm. that they had to adjust. And while they were able to still catch some of them, it, it definitely puts a dent in an offense where, you know, a lot of it's supposed to be yak generated by uh, accurate passes. And when you're not accurate, it kind of limits that. Um, I wanted to talk about um, Robert Salah, man. Like the, the game plan is so simple against the Bengals. You play too high because they can't run the ball. They're 30 sec. They rank dead last in rush EPA near the bottom in success rate. They can't run the ball. You have a talented defensive front. There's no reason why you should be playing single high, uh, cover one, cover three. The, the Jets on Sunday did exactly what you're not supposed to do versus the Bengals. They played 21 snaps at cover one, which is 31.8% of their snaps. They played cover three on 12.1% of their snaps. 
and they played quarters uh 27.3 percent of the time which which is good but they didn't play any cover two right and i like as as someone who's an intern who's you know just tweeting out stuff while being in school found that joe burrow's epa per play versus cover two is negative 0.07 since he's entered the nfl me right <laughs> like that is the only coverage he has a negative epa per play on and you run that one time one time like that that's that is a problem right like if if you're not attacking his weakness because you're so hellbent that your coverage is better than their offense, I think like I I don't understand the reasoning behind that because I think offense dictates success more than defense does, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if Joe Burrow is averaging you know 0 0.05 EPA versus cover three, which which is okay, but 0 0.21 EPA versus cover one, why are you running those coverages? You should be trying to run the coverages that he sucks versus versus and like you have a whole week to install this game plan it's not like it's a short week like miami's mm -hmm. on right now you have a whole week to practice cover two and stuff and like i mean if you're in the nfl you should be able to play any type of coverage you're asked to right mm -hmm. so i i was a little bit skeptical of the game plan after i saw the, the stats i literally texted you and you know one of our other friends that if you know salah just has to run cover two and the jets might actually keep this close but they didn't and they yeah. lose by 15. yeah i know i'd I, it was a confusing game plan to me as well. And you have to show some flexibility as a head coach and defensive game planner. And he didn't show that. And like Robert Salah is like a whole right now. Our friend Jack, you know, Lichtenstein at Jack Lick, like L-I-C-H-10 on Twitter, a Jets fan uh, who who <laughs> won the, the 2022 Big Data Bowl college winner. Uh, he put out, you know, out of like the, the 2021 NFL uh, coaching cycle records against the spread, right? So you have Dan Campbell covering machine, 68% cover percentage, Staley, 53% good, Sirianni, 53% good, David Culley didn't get a chance, Arthur Smith, 44%, fine, whatever. Robert Sala, 35% 30, covering against yeah. the spread. Only Urban Meyer at 30% is worse than him out of that coaching cycle. And so like, that's something that really needs to be questioned and then he followed up on this and said like out of the new the 112 newly hired nfl coaches since 2000 with at least 10 games coached robert sala ranks 105th in record against the spread and basically all these coaches didn't make it past 20 games as a head coach and he had just finished his 20th game so you know he gets some slack because he hasn't had a quarterback there yet or stuff like that but like that's supposed to be baked into the spread yeah. and it's just kind of crazy he keeps not covering the spread yeah. and and um and yeah maybe the jets need to make some evaluation on him at, at some point yeah wasn't expecting to, to do that long of a segment on robert yeah. so long, but you know we it needed to be mentioned yeah, it needed to be mentioned yeah. and and again vegas spreads are a decent way of measuring like team strength and uh, performing above and below expectations because obviously that's that's basically what the spread is like who's mm -hmm. going to perform better than we expect them to but um let's move on to previewing some of the key week four games uh, we got to start with thursday night football bengals dolphins this line open minus three or it was minus one and a half after sunday it moved to minus three because i think the dolphins played a long game um, so now coming on a short week on the road, now it's at the three and a half. So it's it's crossed the key number of three, which mm -hmm. signals that sh a lot of sharp people believe that Bengals are going to win uh, and, you know, potentially cover this three and a half. So I, I just have a couple of questions about this game. Number one, will the Dolphins adjust? 
the Dolphins love to run a lot of cover zero, right? This is a, a Belichick-style defense, even if Brian Flores isn't there. Um, you know, Josh Boyer has shown a lot of creative defensive looks in the past, especially with Brian Flores. But if he blitzes the Bengals, he's going to get cooked. No, you can't blitz the Bengals. You mm. can't play cover zero against the Bengals. Joe Burrow is going to eat that alive. For as much shit as I give him, he does well versus the blitz because he has the playmakers to get open immediately. So, you know, so far in 2022, no team has blitzed or sent a cover zero blitz more often than the Dolphins send it about 14.6% of the time. And they love to sit in cover three and cover one as well. So they play a lot of coverages that the Bengals like to see and perform well under. So if they adjust, maybe they could see some success. But I think as of right now, I lean the Bengals because they beat the coverages the 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 Dolphins like to play the most often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I lean the, the Bengals as well. Um, that's a really good point talking about just how many plays Miami has had to go through, especially their defense these last couple of weeks. And like that was in like the sweltering heat last week. And we saw this with the Ravens last year, uh, ironically against the Dolphins, where they played this like long overtime game where they almost hit 100 plays yeah. go on Thursday night, I, you know, the next week, just and they just were not ready for anything. They just looked tired, like the whole team. And it's just it's just a lot to recover from. You know, you have to go on the road uh, in, into Cincinnati and like the Bengals are finding their step like this. Is what we talked about last week, that, like they're going to be fine. The receiving talent is too good for them not to be fine. So I, I think I think like the Dolphins coaching staff, while they're smart, it's going to be tough to to stop, you know, when. Tyler Boyd got 105 yards. Uh, T. Higgins got 93 yards last week. Like they just yeah. have too many receiving options to beat you. It's going to be really tough for the for the Dolphins to do so. But they can do so. Mm-hmm. Just don't blitz. <laughs> just play zone. I know you don't like to play zone if you're the Dolphins, but you have to adjust to the to the Bengals. But this this might be the most interesting game of the slate, even though the spread is six and a half. Jags and Eagles, right? So Jags obviously. Uh, destroyed my Chargers on the road, even though the Chargers had 10 days of rest. Trevor Lawrence looking like the number one pick and more, looking mm-hmm. like a top 10 quarterback, which is, you know, things we love to see. Doug Peterson, I think is, in my opinion, reaffirmed himself in the top 10 coaching discussion. You know, I think the Jaguars should be 3-0. They should be favored to win this division after this, you know, especially after this past weekend. But, you know, still the Colts are a little bit favored there. Um, I think in general, what I want to see is like, can the Eagles do well against a de- decent defensive front? Like they've run over any team they've wanted to because how good their offensive line or the offensive line is. The Jags with Foley, Fatukasi, Josh Allen, um, uh, uh, Devin Walk or Devin Lloyd, who's second in the deep race mm-hmm. right now. I'm curious to see what the angles are from this game, like how the Eagles attack the Jags and how the Jags attack the Eagles because both, you know from an analytical perspective, also have pretty robust analytics staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, that's like the thing that stood out to me uh, from Jaguars chargers is like, you can tell their fourth down decision-making and like, we like, you know, we always get like flack for focusing too much on fourth downs, <laughs> which we do, but like fourth down decision-making is important because you can see how it spreads to other areas on your team, right? Like there was no hesitation for the Jaguars when they got up on that fourth and one yeah. and handed off to James Robinson, they took advantage of a Chargers defense that uh, only had four defensive linemen on the field uh, for that run. And it went off for, for a 40 yard touchdown. They decide early on uh, based on the yard line, what distance they need to get to, to go for it on fourth down. And that spreads to how you game plan, yeah. how you make timeout decisions, uh, how you decide on two point conversions, all that stuff. 
So that's where, yeah, that's like the the Doug Peterson part of things. Um, and then like the the two big contributors for the Jaguars so far were are players that like people clowned on them for overspending on this offseason. They probably did, but they're good football players. Yeah. Uh Christian Kirk is uh you know top 12 in yards per route run right now. They're using him a lot in the backfield, uh, which is something that you pointed out. Uh, being really efficient and Trayvon Walker is making plays all over the field. He was too athletic to not be good in yeah. the NFL and you can really see it, it working. So like the Jaguars are not just a nice story. Like they're a good football team. Like they're, they're here to stay. Like it, it's not an accident to go out and beat the chargers on the road by as much as they did. Yeah, totally agree. And I got a shout out Zay Jones also, right? Like mm-hmm. everyone thought they overpaid for him. The dude has had two, two games with at least six catches and 60 yards, which like, no one even thought he could get that. So I think you look at their wide receiver core of, of Jones, Kirk, and Marvin Jones, like that's a that's formidable. Like that's yeah. a pretty solid I would say that's like probably top twelve. Yeah. And Trevor Lawrence is so good, yeah, good. that he probably makes he's making them look better yeah. than what we think they are because his balls are just so accurate and just like line drives like yeah. right in there, right? And it's not fair for him to be as tall as he is and move in the pocket and get these throws off like he can do it. It's it's kind of like watching rookie Herbert and yeah. then next year might be like sophomore yeah. year Herbert because oh, you have to just throw out Trevor Lawrence's first year because of Aaron Meyer. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, so this might be the best game of the slate. Uh, Bills, Ravens. So we have pretty much the MVP front runner and the second, in my opinion, who should be the, the MVP runner up depending on which way you see it mm-hmm. in Allen and Lamar Jackson. So um, the bills coming off kind of like a degrading loss or like a defeating loss, which again, they should have won the Ravens coming off a game where it kind of came down to the wire, but they pulled it off against a, a Patriots team that kind of like, you know, put it to them. But I don't know. The Ravens defense isn't that good. And mm-hmm. the bills offense is, is, is elite, right? Mm-hmm. Like I know they only put up technically 17 points against the, the dolphins, but like again, it's just some unlucky variance. Failed fourth down inside the goal, inside the ten, missed a field goal. Like it was more it was, their true score expected adjusted score was closer to like thirty, right? Mm-hmm. The the uh, Ravens have only forced a three and out six percent of the time. <laughs> Second worst only to the Seahawks. That's not good, right? And the Bills offense has only had a three and out seventeen percent of the time. So. You know, it's probably going to be a high-scoring affair on both sides of the ball, especially with how banged up the Bills are on defense. But I'm I'm really excited to see what should be, you know, a game that could have massive implications for the MVP market. Yeah, it's 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 a shame this game's at one o'clock when the <laughs> rest of them. Yet. Yeah, they gotta they gotta figure out how to flex this somehow. But I I'm so excited for this game. Um, it's 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 gonna be it's gonna be a great game and like. The Ravens right now, like the Ravens have like historically with Lamar, like wanted to run the ball because that's what they're best at. They're, and he's such a good rusher. The the running backs that they have are good. They have the fourth highest pass rate over expected in the NFL right now because this is just Lamar's offense. Like, like just drop back pass. You can scramble. You can pass the ball to Andrews or Bateman who are both playing great. And like, there's just going to be so many points in this game. That's probably going to be even higher when you're playing like the Bills backups corners and on the flip side of things, the Josh Allen was involved on 75 of the Bills 90 offensive plays last week. He's doing the do-it-your-own offense too, where yeah. he doesn't hand the ball off. He doesn't own. So these are the two highest usage rate 
you'll see in the NFL from these quarterbacks. And like, it just shows when you have a mobile quarterback, there's just so many more things your offense can do. And like both of these, both of these quarterbacks could put up, you know, above 28 up to 35, even uh, just with the way that they're playing and the way that their defenses that they're facing against aren't uh, playing. Yeah. I, I'm really curious to see what the defensive game plan is. Like if, if you're the bills, you probably are going to run a lot of zone because that's what they like to do. But do they, add an extra guy to the box, you know, they're smart enough to know that adding an extra guy to the box probably hurts your uh, defensive EPA per pass or like how you stop the pass. Right. So a lot of moving parts. And again, like a two, a battle between two of the smartest, if not the smartest teams in the NFL. Hmm. Okay. Chiefs bucks. Um, son, I believe this is Sunday night football, right? Yes. Sunday yeah. night. So I think, I think the thing uh, for this game is the the Bucks have an elite defense? I think that's you know that's a given. So it's so weird, but the teams have loved to play cover one against the Chiefs this year. Mm. No team has faced cover one at a higher rate than the Chiefs, thirty two point eight percent of the time. And that's it's so funny because in the past you you couldn't play man against the Chiefs because of Tyreek, but because no one can separate on this offense except for Kelsey. Teams can match up well. They can bracket Kelsey on one side and then just say, okay, we'll man up with you on the other. And they can win a majority of the time. Like, that's what the Colts did. They, they didn't just play cover three. They said, okay, our players are better than your players on the outside and, like, even in the slot. And we will beat you by playing man, which is something you couldn't say about the Chiefs in the past. And the Bucks have the personnel to do that. Mm -hmm. Like, Levante David on Travis Kelsey is going to be an absolute popcorn show. Oh. Carlton Davis, Jamel Dean are, are probably going to lock up MVS and, and Juju, right? So to me, it comes down to, in this game, who's going to make the least mistakes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the Chiefs special teams gaffes probably aren't going to happen again. I'm pretty sure they already, like, released their kicker and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so it's going to be, it's going to come down to, like, who makes the uh, less amount of turnover-worthy plays, who has less penalties, things of that nature. Because I think it's going to be more of a defensive struggle than an offensive shootout. Mm -hmm. And like that, this game kind of summarizes where the league is at as a whole right now. Things just seem more difficult for offenses, especially these heavy passing offenses than they used to be. Like 2020 was like the peak of offensive football that we've seen. Uh, you just have all these quarterbacks just slinging it around, explosive plays, everything like that. The Chiefs offense is still really good but it just doesn't seem easy for them anymore. It seems like they have to grind out six, seven yards. They used to never punt. Now they're punting more frequently than they used to. Yeah. And the Bucs have the best defense in the NFL right now. And with the way that defense fluctuates, like I don't know if it's super close, like who the second defense is, but we know that the Bucs defense is number one, just based on what they've done, uh, locking down the Cowboys with Dak, um, locking down the Saints, basically yeah. allowing them to score no points. And then, they shut down the Packers after the first two drives of last plays. week. Yeah, the scripted plays <laughs> and then then it went off the rails. So if the Chiefs can find a third receiving option that isn't Travis Kelsey, Juju Smith Schuster, because you don't want to use Clyde Edwards Alaire in that in that realm because you know he can add value uh by being in the backfield and trying to, you know, keep an extra yeah. defender in the box, they can be fine in this game. But it just seems like it's gonna be a grind for them to put yeah. up points. Question Do you think Bowles just runs back his Super Bowl uh, game plan against the Chiefs this time? I don't think so because I think Tyreek Hill changes a lot of the, the way that they're going to defend that. But it, th there are going to be elements that are similar. Yeah. But Bowles was able to do that because that's when the Chiefs offensive line was bad. Yeah. 
So Rush and, or yeah, Rush three. <laughs> yeah, Rush, yeah. So now like it, it kind of, it changes where their weaknesses are, right? So you can maybe put a little bit more pressure uh, by rushing five yeah. instead. And like the, that game changed like the way the Chiefs like team built, right? But yeah. I know I do like, I do like where that, that thinking is coming from. I think if they, if they were to blitz, which we saw the Chargers do that a decent amount and get some success, you have to send some type of fire zone or mm-hmm. some zone blitz instead of a, a man blitz because I think Reed will scheme up something against a man blitz. But they rush five and play like cover three or cover two behind that. I think they could yeah. have some success. But again, that's me just guessing. You know, we're not film people. So yeah. I <laughs> but like all it takes is like, well, like the data shows is like, like Mahomes is just going to have to grind out these like short yard gains. But all and like the like their their offense is gonna be worse than you know like two years ago. All it takes is just two explosive plays. Yeah, and like that's you know that's like the second most important thing other than your offensive EPA per play for determining what your final score is gonna be. If you make like a model to do that, explosive play rate is so crucial, and that's all it's gonna take for the Chiefs to 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 blow this game open if if they're able to. Yeah, but uh, getting into a game that I think is going to be pretty low scoring. And we'll get to that when we get to the bets, but Rams 49ers Monday night football um, become a pretty big rivalry uh, recently. So like the way that I kind of see this is Matthew Stafford has quietly put together two nice games in a row, but he threw two interceptions against the Falcons um, still one, you know, interceptions don't mean as much as people think. And then he played, he played really well against the, um, the Cardinals uh, last week, zero interceptions, but didn't get like the touchdowns or whatever because they ended up running it in. And like people still have that perception of his opening game that's kind of sticking with him. But this Rams offensive line is really bad. Yeah. And they don't have, uh, they just can't get to any of their seven step drop back concepts that were so effective last year, or their five wide concepts. It's a lot of screens right now. It's a lot of, it feels very 2020 Rams offense where things are just not clicking and you do not want to see the 49ers defensive line when your offensive line is not playing like this and you need to just get the ball out quickly and just try to, there's, there, there's not going to be any explosive plays. Like they're just not able to get into that. You're just going to have to hope Higby and cup can get, you know, five yards after the catch on like one or two yard passes. And then maybe Allen Robinson can get like a back shoulder fade or yeah. something. I got to, I got to say, I don't think Higgy is going to be a factor at all, but the, just from a, like, okay. I have looked at like fading tight ends against the Niners because the Niners have allowed the least receiving yards to tight ends. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be a Cooper cup, Allen Robinson game. And damn, you better hope that Skoranek is able to do some shit from <laughs> the fullback position. <laughs> Um, but yeah, like uh, I agree with you. This is probably going to be a grinded out game. The the Niners are just a D line factory. Like mm-hmm. Nick Bosa has been tremendous this year. Ebucom, even though he like was just a rotational guy at the Rams, it's going to be his revenge game and you know playing next to Nick Bosa. And they should have Ark Armstead back against a pretty weak Rams interior. So it, you know, Shanahan is is kind of owned McVay the past couple of years. You know our friend George Tahiri likes to joke about that uh, on on the forecast, but. <laughs> Um. Yeah, it's it's going to be really interesting to see how these two coaches game plan against each other because we've seen this matchup play out so many times, and both offenses are clicking a little bit. But you know, this is a this is a, a game that's probably going to be more of a defensive struggle. Mm-hmm. Definitely agree. And yeah, like both offenses like have like uh like series of series where they'll actually like you know put up some points, move the ball. But you know, and we can get into our bets of the week here. Um, like I have Rams 49ers under 42 and a half. 
And that's just because like these offenses haven't shown that they've been able, they they've been able to sustain multiple drives where they've been scoring touchdowns like we've seen from them in the past. And these are defenses that are playing really, really well. Like the Rams defense, again, they have probably the best, you know, defensive line in the NFL, uh, as, as usual when you have Aaron Donald, but it's just crazy that, that these defenses just keep churning out players, no matter how much coaching talent, player talent that they lose and the offenses are struggling right now. So I think that, you know, it's going to be really tough to see both of these offenses score over 21 points each. Yeah. Um, I definitely agree with that. I love that bet. And I like, I'm not one to, to agree with this trend because one of my bets is actually fading the trend, but there's been a thing. I don't know if you've seen it called primetime unders mm. where it's just a trend where like games go under in primetime, like 62% of the time. So, you know, it, it's a trend that's profitable the past couple of years. You know, you don't want to be just trend betting because those things never, you know, eventually they'll regress to the mean and the books will compensate for that. But um, I guess I can just like counter that. I think one bet I like Dolphins Bengals over 47. Um, again, uh, we talked about it in our analysis for this game preview. The Bengals are a bad matchup for what the Dolphins like to do a lot on defense. Mm-hmm. So the only way I see the, the Bengals not having success is if the Dolphins adjust. And you, it's tough to just predict adjusting a defense, especially so early in the year. So the Dolphins D coming off 90 plays in only four days of rest. I think they're going to struggle against the Bengals. And, you know, one one thing I've found with uh, Mike McDaniel is he has one of the highest um, EPA in scripted plays. And then, you know, something we just talked about is, like, he does very well when he's trailing. Like, he's, mm-hmm. he dials up the good plays when he's trailing. So, yeah. um, I think in a primetime game like this with the short rest, I think both offenses come out firing. And, again, they're they're both bad matchups for each other. Why do you think the the trend uh, of primetime games going under recently has been happening? I that's a good question. I'm not too sure. Maybe it's because the offenses are just bad. Like we haven't had like a really good game. Like the mm-hmm. Dolphins and Bengals. Like last week was what Brown Steelers. We had Cowboys Giants. Right? Yeah, uh, Broncos Niners. Like those aren't great offenses. But I think especially early early game or like Thursday night primetime games. It, it's tough for offenses to like get a good read on defenses and stuff. But like when you have a situation like this where a team is coming up on short, you know, a, a long game, 90 plays for the defense and a short rest where it seems like um, our friend Hussam Patel, um, who's a Miami Dolphins fan, like he was tweeting out like a lot of the guys got banged up during the game. I mm-hmm. think we see some struggles on the defensive end and potentially see a shootout in Cincy. Yeah, no, I I definitely see that. And yeah, I think like the primetime trend, if it's like a thing, it might just be variance is because primetime games are the most bet on and no one wants to bet an under because that's no fun to root yeah. for. <laughs> yeah. So I think people just bet overs and that's like where the line movement kind of goes. But I don't know that that's just a, a theory that I had. Um, OK, so some spread bets now. Uh, Chiefs minus two against the Buccaneers. Um, I just but the Bucks offense is third to last in explosive play rate right now. They just have no way to generate offense. And, you know, it's it's just really tough 
for them to put up points. And like, again, what I talked about when we were previewing this game, all it takes from the Chiefs is two or three plays where they're at the plus 40 and all of a sudden they're in the end zone because of an insane Mahomes throw. So that could be like 14 points right there that kind of blows this game open. So, you know, it's kind of like taking the Chiefs money line here because like small chance they they win by less than two. But it's still I still like either bet money line or or Chiefs minus two. Yeah, and make sure you shop around. You could get one and a half at some places um, as of recording. Again, we've had a lot of lines move after we record, yeah. so just make sure you're getting the best um, line out there. Um, final bet, I love Browns minus one. Like, I mm. love this play. Mm. I don't understand how the Falcons are getting a lot, like, this much love. Like, the Browns are should be a 3-0 and team Um, in, you know, in theory. Uh, they shouldn't really lost to that Jets game, but you're telling me that basically this is a pick em you know, uh, when you factor in like home field advantage. And I, I think the Browns are just too talented and they're, they're better coached in my opinion. I think Arthur Smith has done a tremendous job, but the, the Browns are averaging 0.166 EPA per rush. That's more than their EPA per drop back, mind you, which is, you know, obviously number one in the NFL by like 0.08 rush EPA. The Falcons have the worst rushing defense in the NFL. <laughs> so you have the best rushing attack against the worst rushing defense, like the, the, the Browns for, in my opinion, are going to dominate this game in the trenches. Mm-hmm. If miles Garrett play, you know, he's going to, he's going to eat up what and do his thing, but especially on the offensive side of the ball, once the Falcons get over their, um, get over their scripted plays. And if the, if the Browns can, you know, keep it within a score in the first like 15, 17 minutes, the Browns are, I think, just going to pound the ball, mm-hmm. and the Falcons have no one on their D line or front seven to stop them. And the big thing, my the big you know read on this game is the Falcons. While they are a pretty you know good team offensively, um, they rank uh, they rank ninth right now in EPA per play. They're really consistent, forty nine point two success rate, which is third, which means they aren't generating explosive plays. And when we look at the Browns defense. They're really bad at stopping these explosive plays. Mm-hmm. Like that's how they get beat. If the Falcons can't generate the explosive plays, and they're just a super consistent team, I think the Browns defense will eventually stop them. So I like Browns minus one. You can take the money line just to be safe, but um, you know this is a bet I really liked. Yeah, no, I, I love this bet. I'm, I I feel really good about the Browns. And you know when we talk to D- Dak Brown here next, we're gonna get into that with him too. And I wrote up uh, Browns Falcons over forty eight for. PFF, it moved up to 49 and a half yeah. now. So already got closing line value there. <laughs> uh, and like when when there's a game with a lot of points, you're going to want to take the better offense and the better yeah. team uh, to cover because like there's a wider range of amounts that they can win by. And so when this is probably going to be a very high scoring game because of all the things that you laid out, we can see the Browns winning by a lot there. Yeah. So those are those are our four bets uh, for for the week. I uh, had a lot of fun, you know, reviewing week three, you know, talking about week four and, and dishing those out. And we will now jump into wait, wait, wait. what do you want to make our bet of the week? Oh, oh, bet of the week. Um, oh, ooh, I, I, I like your reasoning for Browns minus one. I feel All like right. that's going to be the one. You <laughs> yeah, really yeah. convinced me when we were going through it. Yeah. You really right. convinced me when we were going through minus it. Minus one. Bet of the week. Faith with Stefanski, Nick Chubb. Yeah. <laughs> the promised land. Yeah. We are 0 and 3. We are breaking the streak. Yeah. Browns. <laughs> Browns minus one. Yeah, this will be the week. This will be the week. Betting against the Falcons is usually good. Not this year so far, but this is when it'll happen. 
So now we will jump into our interview with Dak Brown. We are now joined by Dak Brown, a member of the Michigan Football Analytics Society, for our second interview that we're going to do with someone from the club. Dak is a contributor at the 33rd team and is also has some other cool projects that we're going to get to. Dak, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good, man. I appreciate you guys for having me on. Um, you know, I'm a Browns fan, so I appreciate you having me on this week and not last <laughs> week because I did not want to talk about the Jets today. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, Dak, we... For our listeners, if you can't, if you couldn't hear the the heavy UK accent, you know he's one of the few people in our club that are uh, originally from the UK. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your fandom and how that originated in the UK and how that's you know proliferated in the US? Sure, sure, yeah. I mean, to be honest, my football journey is not that long. Um, I've kind of, when it comes to US sports, I've kind of backed the team or the person that's got me into the sport. Um, and the first thing that I remember with football is, is I believe the 2018 draft, watching Baker get drafted. Um, and I remember the, you know, all the reels that they played during the, the draft, uh, during the draft build-up and stuff. And I saw the flag being planted and I was like, yeah, this guy, this guy has some swagger. So I can, I can jump on board with that. And then the Browns obviously drafted him a one and been a Browns fan. Um, you know, since then. So I'm lucky I missed 0 and 16, I missed 1 and 15. Um, but I'm I'm a, I'm a Browns fan for life now. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's 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 definitely interesting to always hear like why people that don't grow up in America like pick their different teams and like I I like like the, the path that you took to get to that. And so like when you're when you're like, you know, talking football with people like back home in England compared to here. And when you're like just like watching games, like what's what are some like the cultural differences that you see like between the the two areas? So I, I think that I've at least gotten fully into the sport. My background is analytical. I've worked for finance companies before. My um, bachelor's in the UK was in data science. I'm doing an applied stats master's out here. So I've always looked at sport from that perspective and really kind of getting passionate into it. I've I've you know started to do some genuine work on the analytics side. So that's obviously not there in the UK just yet. Um, in addition to that, you know, people are still trying to get to grips with the whole fandom aspect of it. I remember going to, I think it was the Bucks Panthers game in, in the UK in, in Tottenham Stadium. And everyone turns up to those games in whatever jersey they can find. Um, so there was a dude in a Baker Mayfield jersey then. Um, there's obviously a lot of Eagles and Pats fans out in the UK. Um, so yeah, I think in terms of fandom, it's still something that's growing. Um, and I've definitely found a, a home out here having what I feel is more kind of sophisticated conversations about the sport. Yeah. Do you think college sport, now that you've seen NFL in college, like do you think college football is a little more uh, enthusiastic, fandom is more enthusiastic than the NFL, especially since, you know, the big house is the, the largest stadium, college stadium in the U.S.? Without a doubt. And I think that that has kind of solidified my interest in, in football when coming out here, because it's when you go to a, a university out here, it is very easy to get wrapped up in the whole like camaraderie and excitement of college football. Um, and it's it's a spectacle. It's a spectacle that you wouldn't see in the UK at all. Um, so definitely kind of coming out here, watching college football, I've recommended it to so many people desperately try to get my friends out here mm -hmm. to come and watch some games because there is there is no experience like, you know, going to the big house and, and 
cheering with a hundred. We had a hundred and ten thousand last weekend. Um, there's there's nothing like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's 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 really special. You know, I still remember the first time I went to college football game when I was I don't know six years old, and I was just blown away that that many people like just show up in one area for for an event at at a time. But now, like you know, that's just like a, a weekly thing that everyone does. You know, college and NFL wise, and like you know, as we get into you know, talking about like some some actual NFL here. Like, so I think the story of the Browns so far has been how Kevin Stefanski has been able to make an efficient offense, an offense that ranks top five in EPA per play with a backup quarterback. Um, you know, as someone who's who's really been looking at the Browns closely this year, like what have you seen uh, is like kind of the reasons why that the Browns have been able to have such a efficient offense with Jacoby Brissett. So when I, I mean, if we literally start with the Steelers game, when I was kind of doing my analysis on this game, I wrote down one line first um, and then I realized I was here to talk about the Browns. So I wrote a lot more. Um, <laughs> but the first line I wrote was, thank God for Bill Callahan. Um, and for those that don't know, that's our O-line coach. He has been with us for about three years, but is kind of solidified. He's been in the league for 40 years and is, is solidified as the guy when it comes to offensive line coaching. Um and I think that a lot of people are seeing that our offense is kind of, it's founded on the run game and then it is the pass when we need to. Um, but I'd say that I think it's it's founded on the on the O-line, really, because that has been the one kind of beacon of light throughout all of the ups and downs that we've had over the last three years. Um, if we literally, you know, go to the Steelers game, we had Joel Batonio, Jack Conklin, Chris Hubbard, they're all questionable before the game. Uh, they did play, but, you know, they've had, niggling injuries we had Jedrick Wills go down for part of the game um and that doesn't even compare to what we had last season we had a lot of guys you know in and out we had guys in like third on the depth chart coming in and playing positions that they probably haven't played in college um so you know Callahan's created a very much a next man up philosophy every guy that comes in you know whilst he may not do the exact job as the starters do he at least is doing a more than serviceable job um, and you know, against the against the Steelers, Jacoby Brissett had seven pressures in 33 dropbacks, so that's 21. percent Yeah, um, and I think what the O line has done is just made him comfortable. We don't need too much when it gets to third down when he needs to throw. He's got the odd second and long. Um, it's usually a third and short, but you know, Stefanski's scheming Amari Cooper up open every single snap, um, and and the the O line has been rock solid for him. I think. People have kind of like, or people in the offseason kind of lost track of like how good of a coach Stefanski is and like how good of an offensive play caller he is. And I, I think, you know, I love that you brought up Bill Callahan and honestly, like why I love bringing on our guests to just talk about their favorite teams. Like, I feel like people say O line coach is the second most important coaching position outside of the head coach. And I would tend to agree. And I think the Browns built this offensive line. To, for Baker because he's a quarterback that needs everything to go right to succeed. And it's it's surprising that Brissett has had a, like a decent amount of success. Like, do you, I'll ask you this, like if we get to week 13 and the Browns are say like a surprising like eight and three, seven and four, like do you turn the reins over to Deshaun if Brissett is producing at a top 10 quarterback level? Or do you just ride the season out with Brissett and see how far he takes you if he's playing that well? I I think I think regardless, you have to turn the reins over. We have to see what Deshaun Watson does, um, because I think that there is still a ceiling. 
yeah. with Jacoby Brissett, mm-hmm. and there is only so much that we can that we can go with him. If even if if playoffs are out of the question, it'll be good for Deshaun to get some snaps in, um, and then you know just get used to this offense for sure. Um, I think that we don't see the the ambitiousness when it comes to Brissett. We're not kind of getting him to do anything overly. Um, extensive or anything like that. He's he's quite far down in terms of you know average depth of target and things like that. He's not throwing the ball far. We don't we don't need him to throw the ball far. Um, but I, I think that I think that when we need someone to really be dynamic on their own, and that will happen later on in the season, yeah. especially going into the playoffs, we need the quarterback that we you know paid two hundred million dollars to as well. Yeah, no, I, I I agree with that. I I do think you have to see what what Deshaun has to offer. Um, but you know the the rust factor could be there. Like he hasn't played football. You know this will be like almost two years now for him where he's playing at a competitive level. And we've kind of seen that with Russell Wilson this year, right? Like when when you don't play in the preseason and you have all these new pieces around you and you have a first time uh, head coach uh, who's who's also doing play calling, you know, that's like some of the the issues that could pop up when you don't have any live reps with them. That's like why the Broncos offense has gone off to like a slow start. Like what are some some things that you've seen with Russell Wilson in, in Denver so far? So it's it's interesting. I was watching the that was kind of one of the the main games that I watched obviously this weekend. Um, and it just it seems like wherever he goes, he can't seem to escape a really bad line. Um, he was under pressure. I think it was forty percent of his of his dropbacks uh, on the weekend. Um, and it kind of got me thinking about an interesting study on kind of time to throw versus pressure rate and performance. Um, so it's something that we need slightly more developed stats for. We need kind of time to throw on every snap. Um, but it would be interesting to see how the time to throw is affected over the course of a game or over the course of the season as a quarterback maybe starts to lose some faith in his in his offensive line. So, you know, if he's looking more and more jittery as the game progresses, it's probably because he's getting pressured more and more. Um, and an extension of that study is then, you know, how is the head coach understanding that, realizing that, and then starting to change his schemes. So is the average depth of route then reducing for yeah. that? In order to help him kind of slowly move up the field as opposed to just taking these these pot shots. Mm-hmm. Um and to be honest, on on Sunday night it wasn't all his fault. There were some really poor drops from from the receivers as well. So it definitely wasn't all on him, but he still looks a little bit unsure. And maybe maybe he came into this Denver team expecting a better line than he got and is now kind of readjusting and thinking, you know, I'm basically playing like I'm in Seattle but with a different color jersey and in a different <laughs> yeah. location yeah it's it's funny because I mean I literally tweeted out like how many times is Russ gonna hit his damn check down in that Niners game and I think it's because he wasn't confident in his protect, protection to hold up against D'Amico Ryan's uh defense and you know credits to Ryan's I think I think he had a really good he called a really good game on Sunday but but yeah Drew I want to wrap it up with your you know exciting project that you know you're going to be sharing with us so why don't you talk a little bit about what you have in the works right now sure so so to give you kind of the the preface of what what i'm trying to build um it kind of rides off the fact that the behavior or the attitude of the casual fan is changing um and it's why we're seeing things like you know podcasts like what you guys are producing kind of flourishing and doing really well because people want to listen to content that is more informative that's more data driven right um i think it's it's too easy to disprove a quote-unquote like hot take 
uh, because there's just too much information out there and it's just too easy for you to you know get that information it's why we see kind of a lot more backlash against these media outlets that are just kind of spewing information people just you know they can they can hear that and they immediately know you know that just doesn't make sense versus you know what i saw and what i see in the numbers um we see statistically that the nfl is is growing and it's making a lot of its proprietary information more available um to to the public you know we've got the big data board that's been running for a few years now we've got i know you guys are doing some work in in, in contract negotiation and stuff um aws next gen stats is kind of getting us as close to live tracking data as as the public can get. Um, I don't know if you guys saw the, the Amazon Prime broadcast, but they yeah. basically had the routes running, yeah. you know, as receivers did it. And to see that happen in live time, you know, it shows kind of how far we've, we've come. Um, college football still has a way to go, in particularly in terms of creating accessibility to the general public. Um, you know, we know that all 130, 131 FBS teams have access to PFF Ultimate. We know that they have access to all of that proprietary snap-by-snap -snap detailed data. But the casual fan doesn't have that yet. And especially with the way the NFL are going, it's only, a time, it's only time before the college football fan wants that information as well. Um, so what we're, what we're producing, the Big Ten narrative is essentially starting as an online newsletter, covering analytical stories in Big Ten football, uh, we have writers that essentially will sift through all of this data being output every game and find stories within that to kind of create greater accessibility to the information at hand. So combining the numbers with the X's and O's and really building narratives, understanding the meaning behind that and creating stories. Um, and accessibility has always been key for us. So what we also want to make sure we do is that in every single story we write or every narrative we publish, there will be interactive charts that our users, our readers can you know, go and click and run different scenarios and see how you know different situations might develop and things like that. Um, we're also looking to build a, a piece of software or a piece of kit that will land up being the central repository of data. So collecting all of this free data that's out there, putting it into a, you know, maybe a website or, or a software that you download um, and giving, you know, readers the complete functionality to be able to uh, to use that, understand the numbers more, and get as close as they can without, you know, needing to learn extensive coding or anything like that. Um, so yeah, we're in an exciting space. I think that the best way to keep track of our progress is is through is through my Twitter, which is underscore Dak Brown. Um, and yeah, I think it's only gonna it's only gonna grow from here. So I'm excited to see where it goes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I'm I'm really glad you're doing that because. Well, first, out of everyone I know, and I know a lot of data-related people, no one can build Tableau interactive charts or dashboards quite like you. So I think that's really exciting. But also, yeah, like I get asked all the time, like uh, when I put out something NFL-related, people will message me or reply and be like, this is cool. Do you have something for college like this? And usually there's not an answer for that, right? Like college college football data analysis is just kind of a little bit behind right now. So I think, I think you know, the Big Ten narrative is going to be, do a great job of of kind of closing that gap. But yeah, Dak, thank you so much for coming on. This was this was a lot of fun. It was a great time. Um, just to reiterate for everyone listening out there, you can find his Twitter at underscore D A K B R O W N. So at Dak Brown, uh, and you can also find the Big Ten narrative linked in his bio there. Yeah, Dak, thank you so much. Thank you guys. Cheers.